0: Welcome to the IoT Idols podcast. I'm Ryan Cousins, co-founder and CEO of Critical. We help bring bleeding edge technology products to market through a combination of hardware and software modules and professional engineering services. We believe every innovator has a powerful collection of experiences and knowledge that can help inspire others in their field. If you have a story you'd like to share, stick around at the end of the show and we'll explain how you can be a guest on one of our upcoming episodes. In just 15 to 20 minutes, you could be the next IoT Idol. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of IoT Idols, Innovators to Watch. I'm your host, Ryan Cousins, co-founder and CEO of Critical. And I'm super excited to be joined today by Mark Seeger, co-founder and CEO of Gladways. Mark, thanks for being on the show. Uh, Thanks so much, Ryan. It's great to be here. Yeah, so just uh, to start off, how about you just give us a quick overview of uh, what Glideway is all about, kind of how you guys started out, what you guys uh, your main mission is, and we can kind of take it from there.
1: Sure, sure. So, so we've been around for about five years. Most of that has been in stealth mode. And, and when I founded the company, it really came out of an intersection of two ideas. One was just how broken public transportation is in terms of the economics, the technology, the experience, the availability or lack of availability uh, in many places, but 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 coupled with a love for public transportation for what it does. I mean, public transportation, you know, is, is really one of the best uh, uh, um, examples of us investing in ourselves to provide more access of opportunity to more people. You know, it's one of the best ways we can invest in ourselves to, to provide better access to employment affordable housing, education, care, commerce, all those all those things that add value to people's lives. Um, but, but you know, my background is I'm Dutch American. I spent a third of my life in Europe, a third of it here in, in the U.S., and a third of it in Asia. And so I've seen different aspects of approaches to public transportation, some better and, and some not so good. But, but what I found is that the desire and the need for public transportation is really strong, right? The need for it is there. You only have to be stuck in a traffic jam to wish that there was something else, right? As part of your daily commute, public transit is a great example of it, but just how little of it there is and what is there is so poor uh, and, and so bad at, at, at uh, providing equity of opportunity. And so you then start to ask yourself, well, why is it? How come this is, right? How can we be in, in the 2020s where where we are still suffering, uh, frankly, from train technology, which is, you know, 200 years old um, and, and bus technology and things that just really don't cut it and, and when you go through that, you learn something pretty shocking. And the first thing I learned was that, um, that the, the, one of the roles of public transportation is to provide equity of opportunity, right, access uh, for more people. But part of it is like sort of an engineering approach, which is I have a huge population of people I have to move in a short amount of time because we all kind of go to work at the same time or, or, or come home at the same time, right? It's just a, it's a tough engineering problem to solve. And the crazy thing is, despite all the ingenuity and innovation in the world, the human race, right? Our society has only come up with one technology to solve that problem of moving a large population of people in a short amount of time. And that's rail tech or or, or train technology of one kind or another. And that's what we have. There's literally never been anything else. And if you say, well, okay, well, what's wrong with that? Well, every train on earth loses money with every single ride. I mean, that's, just, that's crazy, right? The more people you move, the more money you lose. And, and, and who is, who's losing the money? Well, it's you and me and all of your listeners as, as taxpayers. So that's just inherently unsustainable, right? It's a clashing, clashing uh, forcing function. The, the society wants you to move more people, but the more people you move, the more money you lose. And it, it's crazy. And the other problem you learn is that to build rail or bus systems as well, the, the cost is enormous. I mean, in, in California where, where, where we're based, uh, the the BART, the Bay Area Rapid Transit, uh, the, the the train system we have here, is costing 1.5 billion dollars per mile to build, which just means that the dollars involved are, are what I call scientifically bonkers crazy. <laughs> and so, you know, what you end up with is a world where not very little rail can be built because no one can afford it. And if you want to take a real step back, the, the numbers and obviously I have these numbers at my fingertips because this has been my life for the last six years uh, when I since more or less when I founded the company till now, but uh, there's roughly 4,500 cities on earth that are of a size and a population density to need a mass transit public system, public transportation system. Less than 200 have one, Mm -hmm. 178 cities. That's 4% of the market is served by a technology or a product base that loses money with every single ride and costs a billion dollars a mile in some countries to build. And so you're like, well, surely we can do better, right? Surely we can do better. And and that was really where we came from. We we, we came from the perspective of loving public transportation, which not everybody says, right? We, we do love it. Um, but wanting to make it better across a couple fronts and those fronts are, we want to be able to build more with less. So let's just bring the costs way, way down. Um, but let's boost the experience because, yeah, some trains are nice, but not all of them are. Some buses are OK, but not all of them are. Certainly not here in the U.S. And so, you know, how do we cut costs, make the, the, the experience better, cut the carbon footprint dramatically? I don't need to tell your, you and your listeners that that the carbon crisis is a, excuse me, the climate crisis is an enormous crisis that has to be solved. Um, oops, sorry, my phone's ringing there. Um, but But we want to do all those things and serve more people. Right at the end of the day, this is about equity of opportunity, and and that's really, really important. So wrap all that up together. How do you do that? And what we've stumbled upon is an idea that is older than I am. Uh, People have been trying to do what I'm about to describe and what we've been able to do since the 1950s. That's as far back as I can see anyway, Um, both in the U.S. and in France and the U.K. and various other countries. They've all tried to do it. And what we what we're doing is we're doing the exact opposite of what a bus or a train does a bus or a train is what's called an aggregator. It's a large vehicle and you cram lots of people into it. And then you go from stop to stop to stop and people get on and off as, as closely, you know, as, as, as they are to their origin and destination. And the reason you do that is because now you're spreading the cost of moving that massive vehicle over different heads. Okay, that makes sense. That, comes, that, that kind of thought process comes out of the industrial revolution, right? The aggregation of factories and so forth. The problem is, well, what if your train isn't fully loaded or you have half the seats empty on a bus? Well, now your unit economics, the dollars per person per mile traveled they're spread over fewer people. And you get very quickly into loss making territory because your fixed costs are still the same. You're just spreading it out over less people with a very low ticket price. And so what we've invented is an idea that disaggregates mobility. Um, The the analogy I like to use is we packetize people the way the internet packetizes data. So instead of a large data file, you chop it up into small packets and you route those packets intelligently across your network, depending on what is the quickest and most efficient way to to get the data to where it needs to go. Well, we do the same thing. So for us, what that means with people uh, is that every passenger, uh, whether it's a person or a family or maybe colleagues, you and I might travel together. So every party gets their own vehicle. So no ride sharing, their own vehicle, on-demand, and it's point-to-point. Picks you up where you are, drops you off where you want to go, and never stops in between. So no train stations or bus stations or any of that. And so if you take a step back, basically what we do is we we give an Uber-like experience, on-demand, private, and all that, but at the price of a subway. So we keep our tickets exactly the same as mass transit fares are today, so a couple bucks a ride depending on where you are. Um, But you get your own vehicle on-demand 24-7. And so what you're doing is you're going from a small Fleet of large vehicles to a large fleet of small vehicles. And why that's important is because when your vehicle shrinks, your supporting infrastructure shrinks. And when your supporting infrastructure shrinks, your costs come way, way, way down. So we're about one-tenth the cost, about 90 to 95% cheaper to build than a commensurate, say a rail system or, or even a bus system. So costs come down. The experience is going way up because it's sort of an Uber-like private car experience, right? Which is generally what people want. Um, but by keeping prices the same, we can actually bring our cost to deliver the ride lower than the revenue we get by selling a ticket, meaning we have money left over, meaning we're profitable operationally, which the world hasn't seen since World War I. That was the last time a, a public transit system really broke even, right? A train system really broke even. It was before World War I. And why is that important? That's important because what we do with the profitability that's left over is use a huge chunk of that to pay for the infrastructure that we have to build. Why is that important? Well, now we can go to cities, municipalities, and even private institutions and say, we will build this thing for you and solve your traffic problems and your social and economic equity problems and provide all this value at zero cost to you. No more taxpayer subsidy to build it and no more taxpayer subsidy to make up the gap between the revenue you get by selling a ticket and the actual cost of delivering a ride. And that then b- makes complete changes the process where you go from, it takes 20 years to, to propose and build a bus line or a train line, which I think is generous. Usually it's like 40 or 50 years or in New York's case, 99 years to build the second avenue subway <laughs> line, right? And who knows how long it's going to take in San Francisco to build the, uh, the, the market extension, um, to 20 months, 20 months and the city pays nothing. And yet we add a lot of value doesn't stop there, though. There's two more things I want to mention because th- this is a complicated problem, right? There's a reason why, why, why this problem has been so stagnated for so long, and it's because of the complexity. Because the other thing we do is by bringing packetizing people, right, by bringing everybody down to the individual vehicle and routing the individual vehicles intelligent across the network, capacity actually goes up. We can move more people down a glideways lane than a train can move. We're talking about tens of thousands of people per lane per hour, which is extraordinarily high capacity because of the way we orchestrate the vehicles. Because we have with computers and all the more modern technology today, we can actually orchestrate the movements of fleets on closed infrastructure because our vehicles are on closed lanes, closed, closed infrastructure, the way a train is too. And some buses are too, because you want to get rid of bottlenecks like traffic lights and things like that. Um, so we can move a huge amount of, of capacity, and we can dramatically reduce our carbon footprint. How do we do that? Well, it's really obvious. Our vehicles are small, so we're just moving less weight, right? And so our energy efficiency is much higher, uh, our energy utilization is much lower. And the flip side of it is, if no one wants a ride, we're not moving a vehicle. So we are fully demand responsive. So if it's one o'clock in the morning and one person wants to go home, we deploy one vehicle to bring that individual home. And if it's six o'clock in the morning and 10,000 people are trying to go to work, well, we will deploy that many vehicles and bring them to work. But we have no empty seats driving around. And so that allows our, in in the sort of the the technical parlance, um, forgive me, and, and I hope your viewers forgive me for this, but... Our unit operating costs, the dollars per person per mile traveled is for the first time ever decoupled from how many people are using the system at any given time. And what that allows us to do is say, hey, if we're fundamentally profitable moving one person, we're gonna be profitable moving a lot of people, which means we can just operate 24 hours a day, always available anytime transportation, which is sort of the ideal. And we can do that because our economics allows for it and our vehicles are electric and autonomous. And so there's no drivers involved in that sense. And so if you take a step back you say, well, what are we doing? Well, we have a closed system that is our network, just like, like other uh, transportation systems. It's just, we've shrunk it down and boosted the efficiency by leveraging computational technology, robotics, or autonomous vehicle technology, and collapse that into a value proposition that is we think is competitive with your, your car, because our value proposition, the cost is low, it's private vehicle, it's on demand, um, but you don't have to deal with traffic. You know have to do with parking so you know it's, it's kind of it's kind of in the ballpark of your own car or an Uber but the cost is very low. so that value proposition we think is good to get people out of cars, which is necessary to address uh, climate change goals we all have you know uh, being carbon neutral in the next 10 or 20 years. you have to take people out of cars and we think this is a way to do that. The value proposition of the city is great because it's free for the city, right? So they get what they need, which is we got to move labor and goods. That's how value is created, but they can't afford to pay for it or they don't want to pay for it or shouldn't have to. I'd rather that money goes to schools and libraries and other things. So that's a good value prop. We use much, much, much less space and we're much more space efficient because our vehicles are small. And so we can go places that you can't take a massive bus or a train. And so we're just more space efficient with the public right of way. And then finally, we use so little energy Mathematically, if you're interested, we we use 40, we consume 40 watt hours per mile per person traveled or per vehicle mile traveled. That's one fifteenth that of a car, one sixth of a, an efficiently operating train. And so if you're trying to be energy efficient, have a balanced carbon budget, that's how you do it. And so that's that's what we're trying to do. I know it's a lot to talk about, but, it, you know, it's a complicated system. And, and And, you know, that's that's what we're trying to do.
0: Yeah, it's super interesting. Yeah, thanks for that 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 explanation. And I think, uh, you know, living in a city myself, of San Francisco, I mean, I haven't owned a car since I moved here. So my entire life pretty much revolves around walking, biking or public transit. Uh, and I guess, you know, Ubers and Lyfts, you know, generally I'd like to minimize, but, but, you know, it's, it's a uh, I think it's so. First of all, I would say that you know if people haven't already checked it out, uh, you definitely check out Glideways.com, G L Y D W A Y S, just to get a sense for kind of the the visual of what we're talking about here because it's super cool looking technology. Um, you know, f- first and foremost, I think it's. Uh, I guess one of the one of the questions that I would have, um, and then I would assume other people, and you've been asked before uh, is congestion. So, you know, cause you know, if you're, if you're talking about, cause I mean, i love the analogy about, you know, moving, uh, packets around a network, you know, very, very apt. Um, but you know, obviously there's network congestion that you have to deal with, uh, cause you know, the, the pipe is only so big. Um, mm-hmm. and one of the, one of the issues, you know, on the flip side of that is if you're, if you're looking at say like a bus or train system, it's just, kind of like arterial system where you know you're you're just driving down one track uh either a literal track or you know a, a bus route um, mm-hmm. and then you have to deal with this last mile issue of course uh, which is sort of a, di- a separate problem where how do you because a, a bus more than likely isn't going to get you to the front door of the place you're trying to go you're gonna have to walk it could be two minutes or it could be 20 plus minutes you know <laughs> depending on exactly where you're going and all that so I guess sort of balancing those things where you're you're trying to um, both lighten the congestion and all that, the energy consumption and everything on the road while also providing the maximum amount of uh, you know efficiency and service to the the, the actual user uh, they, they should the the bit that you're transporting so to speak um, yeah. how do you kind of balance all those things how, how's that kind of looking
1: Sure that that that's a great question. Um and I, and I love this topic because it really gets into something people can connect to because we've been on roads, we've been in in traffic jams, right? We've been in buses, we've been on trains and you know so so I think people have a good intuitive feel for the the sort of the the dynamics of the world, right? So to speak. And so when you when you start to think about it and parse it out, um a road let's just start with a city road right a road or a car lane um on average in a city depending on the kind of city will move somewhere between 200 and 600 vehicles per lane per hour on a normal good day no traffic jam or anything weird like that right and so so that's a bandwidth right sticking with that internet analogy right the data analogy you have a bandwidth of a couple hundred people per hour per car lane on on average, the flip side of that is if you think of like an internet highway, which for us would be like the 101 or the, the 280, which are the two major arteries uh, going up and down the, the Bay Area Peninsula here. That's a superhighway. It's a five lane in each direction. So a 10 lane superhighway. Well, those lanes are optimized for capacity. Depending on the day, they can do somewhere between one and two thousand people per hour right? Per per lane. Right. So, you know, a five lane highway can do between five and ten thousand vehicles per hour on a good day. Right. No traffic jam. Well, a train can do between 10 to 15,000 people per hour as well, because if you think about the, the use case, the problem case statement is that everyone wakes up and goes to work at the same time. And that's the peak demand. And obviously it falls off after, but I gotta, I gotta cater to that, which means my capacity has to be that. Well roads can't do it, right? You're, you're at hundreds of vehicles, uh, hundreds of people per hour per lane. So even if you stack up 10 lanes, you're still not going to get to those numbers. And also you can't build 10 lanes of road in a city side by side, there's just no space. And so, you have a fundamental capacity bottleneck. If you then say, well, okay, got it. Why is that the case? Many, many reasons. I believe there's 161 documented bottlenecks, but I'll give you a simple example. If someone wants to cross the road, you're stopping the flow of traffic in all directions for that person to cross the road, right? And if you do that every other city block, well, your throughput is gonna keep coming down. And of course our roads are shared with trucks and bicycles and walkers and this and that. So there's just a lot of reasons why the, capacity uh, capacity of road lanes is, is bottlenecked. And it has to do with the infrastructure, not is it a human driving it or an autonomous vehicle? Yes, autonomous vehicles are slightly better, uh, but, so you get a slight boost, but not orders of magnitude, right? You're going from hundreds where you need 10,000, right? That kind of number. So so the problem starts with that. So then you say, well, how do I solve that capacity problem? Well, you, you get the exclusive right-of-way, as in you have a lane that you can use, that only you can use and you've stripped out all the bottlenecks. That's what a train does. A BRT does the same thing or at least attempts to do the same thing as much as it can. Right. And so we do the same thing, too, as in our, our glideways lanes uh, are the size of a bike lane. They're five feet wide. Um, that's just the size that they, they happen to be. It's regular pavement. No, no third rail or wires or anything like that. Just a five foot wide lane. Um, but that lane is completely separate from the roads. So we start with building a network that is optimized for capacity, but because we've packetized, right, because we've disaggregated, um, we're not stuck to a linear line on a map, right? When we think of a, of a rail system or a bus system, it's a line. It may be a squiggly line, but it's a line. It's a one-dimensional universe where vehicles go up and down the, the, the lane. And they have to because you've aggregated mobility and you're stopping at every stop. It turns out when you, when you packetize, when you disaggregate, you can build a mesh network, you can have loops, you could have a grid, you could have a line with spurs coming off of it. You, you go from a one dimensional line on a map to a two dimensional blob of service coverage on a map. And that's starting to, to starting to stitch together the not everybody lives on a line problem and not everyone lives near a train station or a bus station problem. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is when a vehicle is the size of a one person or two person or a four person vehicle and it needs to stop somewhere, you're unloading between one and four people. And so that means that you're you can move from the paradigm of train stations, which are concrete bunkers built underground that are designed to handle thousands of people instantaneously disgorging from a train or at least hundreds of people. And in some cases, thousands to, well, you're spreading the problem out in space and time. So you can go from massive singularities of train stations to what we what we call access points. They're still embarkation zones or boarding zones, but they're much smaller. They're much cheaper. And so you can have more of them. And if you can have more of them, you can start to get closer to where people actually are or want to go versus these train stations that are not a destination in and of themselves at all, right? No one wants to go to a, a train station, at least not in the United States. In some other countries, they, they have malls there, but, but nobody really wants to do that. And so when you, when you run that to the end, you get to where we are, which is where our boarding zones are so small and inexpensive, we can have them every couple hundred feet. And in fact, the projects we're currently developing have like 15 boarding zones per mile. Translation, we're actually building the boarding zones where people want to go uh, industrial sites, commercial sites, residential sites, retail sites, that sort of thing, hospitals, campuses, schools, etc. And so, what that means is you're now being picked up or dropped off right where you want to go, which means the instantaneous passenger flux of any given point is just much smaller. So you've disaggregated that need for a huge concrete bunker and elevators and escalators that can vacate 4,000 people in an hour, which is what they're designed to do, to something that is scalable and small and inexpensive, which starts to get closer to what you provoked a moment ago quite accurately, which is, we'll come to my house in my front door at work or at home. Well, maybe in the same way that a bus might, but probably doesn't. We also won't, but we come much closer to that. as in Our network proximity is much closer to where people are. And that's just today. But imagine, uh, now one one last thing from a technical point of view, because our lanes are grade separated as in they're exclusively for glideways and nothing else, the way a train is exclusively for a train and and a BRT lane is exclusively for a bus and so forth, Um, and we actually put fences, barriers to to prevent incursions. Because of that, um, we can move, as I said before, very, very high capacity but we can also deploy technology, autonomous technology that is available today because closed road autonomous systems have been around for like 30 years, right? The uh, SFO, uh, San Francisco International Airport has that interterminal shuttle tram. It is literally that, it is an autonomous vehicle that goes on a closed infrastructure and, and there's different examples of it, which means we can deploy today with autonomous technology such as it already exists. Well, that's very important but no one's invented closed uh, open road autonomy. You can't go down the streets of the city with an autonomous car. You can't buy an autonomous car, you know, despite Elon Musk's uh, desire to sell me cars and i bought seven of them. So, you know, <laughs> the, the, the sales pitch is working for other reasons. Um, but, but no one saw that problem, but, but I believe people will, right. It, it, it's something a lot of people are working on At Billions of dollars of R and D money are going into it. And I mention this because at some point, whether it's three years or 30 years from now, I'm sure someone's going to figure it out when they do. We can buy it or license it, and our vehicles, which are closed, can now go to Gen 2, if you will, and go on the closed lanes and on the open lanes. So there's no reason we can't leave the closed infrastructure, go up to your front door, pick you up, go back on the little streets, back to the nearest entry point into our network, and then zip you into the center of the city where good luck dealing with traffic, right, which is the whole genesis of this problem. And the neat thing is we can do all of that with a very, very low operating cost. And so if we keep ticket prices the same, we can pay for this whole system I've just talked about without any uh, uh, federal or public dollars needed to build it. And so what you end up with, kind of back to the maybe a little tired internet analogy, right, where <laughs> where, where internet uh, Wi-Fi access points allow you to get data on and off the internet pretty much anywhere you are. Well, our access points allow you to get on and off the network anywhere you want to. And think of our ability to go off the network as like your roaming cell phone where you're always connected to the internet. You know, I'm sure there's other better analogies. But my point is, is that, lots of internet companies to your point about bandwidth is limited have spent their capital to build fiber optic networks and mesh networks of one kind or another to increase bandwidth right and so the model is the same ours are not fiber optic cables we're doing bike lanes but same same costs are totally different but the 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 concept is the same from a business point of view and so when you then say and this will be my last point we can move ten thousand eight hundred people per hour sustained down a five foot wide corridor there are definitely instances where you might need to move more than 10,000 people hour. certainly in megacities, not San Francisco, maybe not even New York, but um, Hong Kong and, and Tokyo and maybe London and, and some places like that. What you can now do is say, well, if I'm not limited to a line where I have to force everybody down that trunk line, but I have a, a mesh or a bunch of loops, I can now intelligently say, hey, you're in that vehicle for right now, you're best to go that route you're best to go that route and so what you end up is what the internet does which is a perfect ideally a very perfect balance of supply and demand vis-a-vis bandwidth or vis-a-vis capacity utilization and so what you now have is if you take a, a section of road or a section of train track um you get a train that goes by every couple of minutes most of the time that track is sitting there completely unused costing you know a billion dollars per Mm -hmm. mile right totally underutilized except for that one train that goes every couple of minutes well what we do is we do the reverse we ensure that every section of glideways lanes are utilized continuously now obviously if not a lot of people are moving then we're not going to deploy a lot of vehicles because we're demand responsive but in morning or evening peak uh, peak demand hours peak commuting hours we're using all of our infrastructure our utilization efficiency Mm -hmm. is very and that's how we're spreading the problem out. We're, we're flattening the curve, if you want to think of it as a defined demand curve, which just adds to the economic model and the energy model.
0: Yeah, super interesting. And you totally read by Ryan about the uh, the autonomy piece, which is, you know, how do you, because obviously that is a challenge that everyone in the world is, you know, <laughs> a lot of dollars being put into that whole thing. But I think mean, yeah. it's a super interesting model where you have a, a road-based autonomous technology that can be confined to a, uh, a closed circuit, if you will, basically like a, a, a relatively known environment. Um, there's obviously always, you know, going to be the, the, you know, what do we do if there somebody hops over the fence or whatever random thing, but obviously th- that's a totally different magnitude of problem than it's just you're open on the open road kind of thing. And I, I think that's, it's interesting, like you're mentioning these, these, uh, because the cost presumably to, you know designate you're not i mean installing quote unquote but to designate a a lane or a given piece of road as a glideways lane uh is way lower than you know obviously a train a rail system would be of course uh but even rerouting bus lines all over the place isn't something that just you can just do on a whim especially if you're talking about electrified you know buses like we have in San Francisco or overhead power and all these these things i think it's interesting to be able to keep that that flexibility both with the dedicated lanes and also in the future be able to have that like did that you know door-to-door service so to speak um when that technology is available so it kind of it spans that big gap between you know what's what's practical and available and possible today versus the the pie in the sky you know and all these cars are just all driving themselves and we're just all in the back having coffee you know uh <laughs> we're taking I mean, I guess, <laughs> yeah i guess so that's i guess the the next question we'll probably probably wrap it up a little bit after this but um I, from for for you guys what is your kind of time frame and, and kind of rollout schedule uh, i'd just be kind of curious do you have pilot programs going in any cities or uh like how how big are you trying to scale how fast like i'm just kind of curious like what is your what is your kind of market expansion and approach uh, to all outside of things
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question because what we're talking about is just complex and expensive, right? And so it's one thing to say, hey, I I think I've figured out a way to do all these things, but it's a totally different way to actually execute on these things. Um, And and particularly when when public rights of way and hundreds of millions of dollars of of decision making is involved, it's just hard to do. No matter who who you are or what you do. Right. Mm -hmm. Even Boeing has a hard time selling a hundred million dollar (laughs) aircraft. It's not not easy to do. So we have to respect that. So so we've been around for five years. I started the company in my living room uh, five and a half years ago. And with 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 a with a look to history to say, look, people have tried this. Why did they fail? And there's two reasons why, or at least my conclusion was that there were two reasons why. One is technological. Like there's some real hardcore algorithmic coding that had to be developed to route all these vehicles and guarantee continuous flow without congestion, all the other things involved with it. So I hired a bunch of PhDs for a number of years to just literally and figuratively crack the code, right? To figure out how would we make these things work? Because we started there. We didn't start with the vehicle. We didn't start with the infrastructure because our technical thesis kind of gets to the other point, which is, man, this is complicated. You want to de-risk as much of this as possible, right? This thing is so complicated, so so involves so many stakeholders. The last thing you want to do is add on top of that evacuated cylinders and magnetic levitation and, and <laughs> I'm sure other things like, no, right? You, you want, maybe we'll get there, but, but, but uh, be as pragmatic as possible. And so our thesis was, we believe that we can execute this Glideway system the way we've talked about it Exclusively with existing commodity supply chain components for the hardware, vehicle, the infrastructure, the IT infrastructure, the sensors and and so forth, right? That kind of thing. And so when we were developing the technology and we actually, at least at the simulation level early on, we're we're able to validate that, wow, this is, this is really possible. Like we're not violating a law of physics and we're starting to understand the edge cases where, where it works and where it breaks down and how to optimize that. The second thing we were, we were building prototypes of is robots, cars, autonomous vehicles, driving around um, using only commodity automotive components. So no expensive 3D spinning LiDAR and $100,000 computers, none of that, just straight up you know, the same stuff that most people's cars have um, and trying to make our technology and software stack work with that hardware platform. And so we went through, we've been in stealth mode for about half a decade. To answer all these questions of can it work and how does it work, et cetera, and then to find the partners to build our vehicles, to build our infrastructure, because we don't want to, frankly, be like Tesla where we're capitalizing billions of dollars of factories to, to ultimately bottleneck our own supply chain, right? That's not what we want to do. And so, we just came out of stealth mode quasi this summer, so a couple months ago, and then, then I'll answer your, your your customer traction question because that's what brought us out of stealth mode, which was our advanced traction here in the Bay Area. But we now have our vehicle partners. We have our infrastructure partners. We even have our infrastructure funders, right? We can attract private capital because we're profitable and we can provide a return on that private capital. So we even have the the, the people who invest in infrastructure lined up as partners and the DBFOM partners, the design, build, finance, operate, and maintain infrastructure developers. We, we have that whole ecosystem System now, and we have the technology. And finally, we have an entire glideway system up and running uh, at, our, at one of our facilities. Um, no longer robots and warehouses, but full on vehicles that you and I can come into. And incidentally, uh, Ryan, I'd love to invite you out to our facility uh, to, to literally come and take a ride and, and see it. And we've been doing the same with politicians and, uh, and, and, and what we call prospective customer cities. So where we are right now is we are in the final stages of six uh, projects in the Bay Area one in south uh, in, in, in Southern California, one on the East Coast, and two in Japan. So those are our sort of our pilots, the constitution of pilots. They're small, they're between, one of them is the small as two miles, one of them is like four miles, some of them are 28 miles. So it's you know, it's kind of modest, small to modest in size. But the reason why is that we can build a small amount of glideways, prove it, kind of make sure it works. Do people like it? Is it safe? Does it do what we kind of sort of said it was gonna do? And then incrementally expand that coverage of that size of the glideway system as you wish or as the city wishes. So you have sort of an incremental approach rather than a massive step change function of I got to build all my train at once, right? I'm just mm-hmm. on trains because so far we have been, so I just want to stay consistent. Trains, you got to do it all at once. It's a huge expenditure. Glideways start small and build up because our threshold for break-even is small. And we want to prove it. We want to build, try a San Jose. We want to try a couple other cities, big ones, small ones, in urban communities, like where you would never build a public transit system because it's not a city, but it's not a suburban town. It's kind of like in between. Uh, Palo Alto would be a great example and South San Francisco, perfect examples where we can put a Glideway system in, add value to everybody. And here's the magic. As we expand the size of those Glideway systems over years, what if we just interconnected them? Now you have a backwards compatibility, right? You can go from city A to city B destination, because it's the same vehicle, it's the same network. Mm-hmm. Back to the internet analogy, every time you add a website to the internet, the value of the internet went up for everybody. Well, for us, it's the same way. Every time we add a node on our network and kind of really stretching that analogy here, but, <laughs> but working on it. Uh, every time you add a node on that network, you've added a list of the destination, added to that list of destinations. And so that value goes up the more destinations for the people connected there is. And that is our vision. And you call it a land and expand model. I just like to think of it as a network propagation model where you build a little bit, it works, people want more of it. So you just build a little bit more. And as the business case makes sense, and whether it's uh, uh, proliferating in a city or in a region and interconnecting them now, we're changing the concept of public transportation completely. We've gone away from a train line with intersect with with interchanges or a bus line with with certain routes at certain times, to a pod-based system from the future where you get on and off pretty much anywhere you want. Robots and it, and and uh, and the cost is low and the experience is high and it's consistent and it's always available and it's sort of phenomenal. The way our future always should have been, you know, since the 1950s probably when when these things started showing up in science fiction movies. Mm-hmm. Um, And that's the expansion model, but we got to walk and crawl before we walk, walk before we run. And so we're starting very small, relatively speaking. We're doing a bunch of pilots. They should all be up and running uh, within the next three to five years, depending on the city, depending on, frankly, COVID that has delayed supply chains and other weird little things here and there. But I would say no later than 2025, we'll have a couple of these systems up and running for the public and then we'll see how it goes. But if they kind of sort of do what we expect, and so far our system that we built is, and we have reasonable confidence that this is gonna work and work well, we'll see where we go. But I'll, I'll say this to you, if we do this right, We can make the Glideways model, the glideway system, become the dominant form of urban mobility for the world. Half the human population lives in an urban environment. And if I can just convince 5% of people who could take their car but choose to take Glideways because the value kind of makes sense, that's 5% of cars we've taken off the road put that up to 10, 15, 20, 30% and so forth. Now you start to get into areas where you really could be carbon neutral as a city, you know, by the 2030s or maybe even the 2040s. And those are all the things we're trying to do. And then one last thing, and this is for me probably the most passionate. So forgive the passion that may, might leak <laughs> through my voice. Um, yes, it's about climate. It's about doing more with less. It's about being better and, and connecting more people. It, it, it's about all of that. Um, frankly, I feel that we need to look back at our own history and just do better. The idea that in this country and in others you could grow up on the wrong side of the tracks to me is just historically offensive. The idea that you that a transportation system bisects a community to haves and have nots is appalling. And so, what one of the overall sort of social missions behind it, what we're trying to do is to make this uh, our technology proliferate and add the value that we've talked about so that we can do away with the idea, the cultural trope that you grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, put that into the dustbin of history, relegate it, get rid of it, and instead bridge communities together because we're not building 30-foot-wide concrete behemoth you know, runways down a city because we need a highway or, or a train line there or something else but instead have terrestrial or elevated tiny glideway systems that do the same thing, just take up a lot less space. There's no reason you can't elevate gliders. In fact, most of our customers right now want that. And we're building elevated systems so you can build a park underneath or that there's a road underneath or what have you. The point is not so much the discussion on elevated or not. The point is the flexibility exists to integrate communities together. And if there's any hope for our future as an interconnected society, it's connectivity, not splitting people apart. And we believe Glideways can help in that in some way, shape, or form.
0: Well, you ended that better than I ever could. Uh, <laughs> and th- No, that's uh, that's awesome. Awesome to hear about the vision, um, and you know that there. It's it's definitely clear that this is impactful way beyond purely getting people from one place to another. Um, so it's it's super excited to hear. I'll for sure take you up on your offer to uh, come take a test ride. Yeah. Um super excited about that already. Uh, so yeah, just to kind of close things out, mark what's the uh, what's the best place or what best way for people to get a hold of you, learn more about glideways, obviously your website and all that? Uh, what do you what do you suggest for people?
1: Obviously, the website is the best place to go. We're always building up our website, and frankly, we lag a little bit behind, so our website needs a lot of work, but we're we're on a monthly basis. We're slowly updating it. So as you have basic Q&A or just want to learn more, just see what I'm talking about, definitely start with our website, which is www.glideways.com, G-L-Y-D-S-W-A-Y-S.com, glideways.com. I think I just misspelled that, so let me try again. G l y d w a y s dot com. It's a Friday, um, but also our LinkedIn and and so as far as uh, as far as social media goes, we're we're mostly on LinkedIn. That's where we do a lot of our updates and videos and just sort of news. Uh, our LinkedIn profile, uh, the, the company profile, is there as well. Ultimately. If you're around, come see us. You know, the the invitation, frankly, is open to your viewers too. If anybody wants to reach out to me, do so. We love evangelizing what we do. Ultimately, this is about people uh, and connecting with people physically, but also, you know, sort of emotionally and intellectually. And so we're very open to that. As we have bandwidth, we'd love to take you down, but also have other people just literally come see our vision. Don't listen to me talk about it. Uh, Kick the tires literally and figuratively. We welcome that very much.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, and, and yeah, I definitely recommend everyone check out the website. We'll put the link in the in the show notes. Uh, check out Glideways LinkedIn. Uh, again, Mark Seeger, uh, founder and CEO of Glideways. Thanks so much for joining us, and we can't wait to see what you guys come up with in the future.
1: Ryan, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. I love, I love what you do. Uh, thanks to your, to your viewers for having the patience uh, for putting up with this conversation if they've gotten here. But yeah, look, I'd love to see you in person, and I hope to, to meet other people as well. Have a great holiday, and, and stay safe.
0: Sounds great. Yeah, same to you, Mark. Thank
1: you
0: so much, Ryan. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks so much, everybody. This has been another episode of IoT Idols, Innovators to Watch. Tune in next time, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Hey, this is Critical CEO Ryan Cousins again. Thanks for listening to this episode of the IoT Idols podcast. If you're an accomplished engineer inventor product manager or technology entrepreneur and would like to be featured on an upcoming episode please go to critical.com slash podcast slash apply that's k-r-t-k-l.com slash podcast slash apply if you enjoyed this episode please tell a friend or share it on social media and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts if you know someone you'd like to have us interview, let them know about the show or tag them on social media using the hashtag IOT Idols. We're always looking for great guests eager to share their stories with our audience. We're regularly posting new episodes, so make sure you subscribe to our podcast, follow us on social media, and join our mailing list at critical.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, be excellent.